Our text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, 1. Even John Calvin, the great theological mind, was confused by the chapter break there. Uh, the complete thought goes into 11, chapter 1. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they get it wrong. This is God's word, which is, of course, never wrong. This is what Paul writes. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in a short prayer? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your people are gathered together in this beautiful summer day to give you glory. And we join in with the chorus of churches all around the world, some who have met and some who have yet to meet, as we sing praises to you. We partake in prayer together. We partake in worship and singing songs. We partake partake in the worship of hearing your word preached, and we partake in the worship of eating the meal you gave us. So, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our eyes. Let us be examined by the scriptures. And let us humbly approach you with a heart of thankfulness. Amen. I don't know if you follow baseball. How many of you guys have been in the new baseball stadium? Anybody in here? The first service totally beat you guys out. Um, There's a bunch of people that went to first service. I don't know if you follow baseball. And I certainly don't much as much now as I used to. But there has been a bit of a conundrum for some baseball players, particularly a baseball player named Jason Adams, who's a pitcher for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. You see, for the last, at least one of their games, their uniforms and hats uh, supported or sported a rainbow symbol on it for Pride Night. And Jason opted out of this night without pay, because he saw this as inconsistent with his Christian faith. Now, around the league, there were some Christians who did not do this. Were they wrong? There were some Christians who did it, because they followed Jason. Was their motivation right? Did that really line up with their convictions or not? Now, he stated he wasn't trying to make a political statement. Of course, everything's political. 
Uh, but baseball players and baseball players are required and restricted to wear a lot of different things. So he was required to wear this patch. It wasn't a choice. And as much as he felt, uh, he just felt uncomfortable wearing it. It didn't line up with his Christian convictions. Now, to be fair, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals recently had Faith Night, where they invited all Christians to stay after the game for sort of a worship experience. They sang songs and heard somebody preach. If you were a Muslim, would you not play in that game? Would it be right for them? Would it be wrong for them? These are all questions that we have to navigate. Of course, people on each, either side of the issue have used Jason to support demonizing the other side. He's been called both a bigot and a hero. But it brings up an interesting question of how, as Christians, do we navigate the world and all the day-to-day decisions we have to make with our employers, with our kids, with our spouses, with our leaders? How do we navigate these things? In the last hundred years, American society has gone from banning alcohol, banning alcohol and marijuana, to reversing those decisions. Recently, we've had a pretty big reversal. I'm sure you've heard about it. Having same-sex marriages, which perhaps you've been invited to, how do we navigate that? How do we ask... Uh, how do we deal with when our kids have a same-sex marriage? And is going to that marriage supporting it? Is not going to that marriage being harmful? We have to navigate these things, just like Jason Adams does. We've had to navigate through medical ethic is- ethical issues, making decisions about life and death. Modern advancement in almost every area of life has brought with it massive decisions. How do we remain faithful to the Lord while also living in with the realities of medical decisions? Some of you have experienced that. I watched my mom experience that with, with my grandmother. All the siblings asked her to decide whether granny should stay on life support or not. Those are hard decisions. And just like those are hard decisions for us, and by the way, I don't want to rush past this. Some of you have brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, sons and daughters whose marriages you may not affirm, and yet here you are. The struggle that you and I have is the same struggle that Christians in Corinth had with eating meat. We may look at it and be like, come on. But it was a struggle, enough to where God, in his sovereignty, actually had Paul write scripture about this issue. This is, not, this is not from the text, but as, as a pastor and as an advocate for young people. I would encourage you, older people in the congregation, I'm not going to determine what makes an older person an older person. Um, and I'm not going to determine what makes a younger person a younger person. But as an advocate for young people, I want to encourage you to think about the life and the world that our youth are growing up in. And to not balk or sort of look at their difficulties and think, why can't they just do this? Or why can't they just get their act together? It's hard. It's difficult. That's not from the text. I just encourage you, think about that. And perhaps your compassion for somebody going through navigating life in this world I might grow a little bit. Don't reinforce the stereotypes of, of an angry old person.
I encourage you. Young people, you have a lot to learn from old people. The freedom of Christian conscience. That's the first thing we'll look at here from our text. The freedom of Christian conscience. In chapter 8, we see the problem of eating meat previously offered to idols. Uh, Now, this text introduces us this morning to a new scenario in the controversy regarding meat served to idols. We know that previous context was that of eating in public restaurants, which were often, if not always, connected to temples around the city. In this specific section, the question was, what should we do in the context of eating at somebody's private residence? You can imagine the scenario here. A Christian is invited to an unbeliever's house for a meal, and meat is served which has been bought in the market. And like most things bought in the market, it had been previously used in temple worship. Almost everything had been. This is an important detail here because for the church in Corinth, almost everything was connected to temple worship. What do I mean by everything? The daily routine, the food in the marketplace, the rhythm of life, the common parlance was all inundated with this belief that there were idols and gods and we all worshiped them. There were idols in each house. There were idols in each town. Each restaurant, each profession had their own gods to which they prayed. The alarming thing about Christianity... Actually, you know, um, a, friend of my, a friend of mine from this congregation and I are reading a book about first century Christianity. And one of the things that we've both... Well, he's back there. Andy's back there. Uh, we've both remarked about this. We meet on Wednesdays and we read this book. How, how pervasive idol and temple worship was to first century Christianity. I mean, it was so weird. And the alarming thing about Christianity, Michael J. Kruger wrote a great book about this. The alarming thing for for Christianity and the citizens of Corinth was not that, you know, the citizens of Corinth, they're like, hey, if there's another God, throw him on the pantheon of gods. We're happy to allow another one. That's the God you worship. Great. The alarming thing, actually, for citizens, for Greco-Roman citizens, about Christianity was that Christians proclaimed that their God became man and that here was only one God and that one God commanded him, commanded his followers to worship him alone. That was the mind twist that Greco-Roman citizens couldn't get around. It was hard for them to synthesize those things. And this is what these new converts to Christianity believed. They were trying to navigate through the challenge of living in a culture dominated by such a different worldview than they had. So you can imagine the difficulty here. So Paul is addressing Christian freedom in the context of personal interaction with a non-believer. Let's first notice that Paul quotes some commonly held beliefs uh, that could be applied here. He says, all things are lawful, he writes. Now, he has already used this phrase back in chapter 6, when instructing on morality in regards to the body. Uh, what did that phrase mean then? It could mean a couple things. What we think it meant was there was a common belief in Corinth that the body was a mere physical object that did not deserve much consideration in regards to what was put in it or what it was used for. As such, the common practices in Corinth, the Corinthian culture, was a gluttony of food, drink, and pleasure. Drunkenness was always connected to temple worship. Temple prostitution was always connected, and Paul's going to get into that in the next chapter, a little bit into that. 
But then comes Christianity and gives a whole different view of the body. Paul writes that the body is a temple of the Spirit, which means that our physical body has value to God. Could you imagine? The gods don't live in the temple. The Holy Spirit resides inside you. You see how much attention, Corinthian church, you pay to your beautiful, ornate columns and Corinthian structures, all made perfectly and beautifully and wonderfully. They still exist. They're still around for your gods. Paul says your body is the temple by which the Holy Spirit... So what does that mean for your body? What does that mean? Oh, man, your body is precious. It belongs to God. Your whole being belongs to God. Our body was bought with the blood of Jesus. And our whole selves are servants to God. So while we have freedom, we're also made slaves to God. And so while we have freedom from food laws, it was still important to discern what was beneficial for both your body and your soul. Now, specifically about meat or material things, and that's why he says all things are lawful, but not all things build up. All the things are good. Now, specifically about meat or material things, which did matter to Paul and should matter to us as well, Paul writes, Eat whatever is sold in the market, for all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, this is a quote from Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, where David is actually describing the heart of a man is what matters, not just mere religious citation or religious practices, but the heart of a man, which can be impure or pure. Material things carry no, more, no moral quality. Material things carry no moral quality. The heart is what God looks at when he stands before the Lord. Therefore, Paul is affirming that Christian liberty goes as far as eating meat that was sold to idols. There's nothing wrong with the meat in the context of somebody's home. He writes, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. I remember as a little boy, my father and I were in Romania. Uh, Ceausescu had just been sort of uh, ousted in a very uh, graphic way. Um, and, uh, and my dad was ministering to the orphanages there, and, and, and he would take military kids on the military bases in Europe, and he would bring uh, about 1,500 of them into these different orphanages and did all this. Go into Romania beforehand, and we would sort of set up these contracts uh, with the local local governing officials. And so how they did that was they would uh, pull out a local-made liquor, kind of our version of moonshine, and, um, and you would drink together. You would drink together. And if you drank over the, the contract, hey, I'm going to use this at this time, it didn't matter what was written. It mattered if you drank together and you shook on it, right? That was how they did contracts. And um, on every aspect of the contract, you would take a drink. And it was as good as codified, right? It was done. And, uh, you know, my dad didn't really find out that, uh, until a couple in, that, uh, that when you were done, um, you would just turn your glass over. And he's speaking through a, a translator, and so, you know, um, that's how you knew. It, okay, everything's great, right? So they kept going. Well, now, if my dad was supported by a lot of conservative Baptist uh, churches, and there probably would have been several eyebrows that were raised at how that was done, Right? And you make calls in situations like that. I can think of that. Just like some Christians from Africa would probably raise eyebrows about how much money our churches spend on ourselves. Or how some European Christians do raise concerns about how much the American church identifies with politics. 
Money, budgets, alcohol, politics, meat sold in the market, material things that are not wrong within themselves. And Paul instructs us that there is great freedom that we have in these things. But while we have freedom, he also instructs us that there is a purpose to our freedom. We have freedom, but there's a purpose to it. Look at the purpose of Christian behavior. So what is the purpose? He writes, so whether you eat or drink, rather mundane things, things we all do every day, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You see, when eating with an unbeliever or a Greek in this context, uh, the problem of meat is only a matter of conscience. But when eating with a believer who may have a conscientious objection, who may struggle with that, or a Jew who lives by ceremonial food laws, then for the purpose of building bridges, of serving the other person, of honoring the other person's conviction, Paul says, don't eat the meat. You see, the purpose of Christian behavior is not to just live freely, but it's to live freely in order to point to the beauty of Jesus. If you need to give up your freedom to draw the gaze of an unbelieving person or a weaker believer or an immature follower of Jesus, then Paul says, do it. Now, this would have been as difficult as it was then as it is now. Think of our natural state of being. We do not naturally think about trying to please everyone in everything we do. And for the few of us who might object to that, oh yeah, I do. I I think about how to please everybody. It's probably because you're trying to avoid conflict. And it's probably to gain people's approval. I know it is for me. And that's actually selfish. You know, when I'm writing these sermons, sometimes I argue with myself in the sermon. And this is me arguing with myself. I do a lot of things that make people happy. Oh, but why do I do it though? Right? It's still getting us something or not making me do something I would rather do. I should do. Especially in our Western individualistic culture, we very much seek our own advantage. Our whole economic system is built on competitive markets. Our education system rewards those who are best. Many of us can talk about the benefits of a meritocracy within social structure, and they are are good. But the purpose of the Christian life is not to strive to achieve and hold the seat of power over others. The purpose of the Christian life is not to strive to achieve and hold the seat of power over others, nor is it to merely rely on our merit as good citizens to accomplish being salt and light in a dark and tasteless world. Let that marinate for a second. Think of the implications for your job. I don't pretend to know the competitive aspects of a lot of your work. I'm sure there are some. I don't pretend to know the competitive aspects of your schooling system. I'm sure There are many. Think of your parenting, your family. It's not to hold the seat of power over others. 
Some of us do hold the seat of power over others. This passage is calling us to reflect on what that looks like. It's sometimes easy to rush over Scripture, especially a text that may be familiar like, uh, like this one. But remember that we don't just read the Bible. We let the Bible read us. And Paul is reminding us that even in the most basic things like eating and drinking and going about our daily work, we are to have a greater vision of our choices during this time on earth. Namely, the glory of God. And you know that the glory of God is what draws people to be saved. It's the glory of God. And it also forsakes our right to press our advantage. Sometimes I wonder how different my life might look like if I took that in my heart. I don't know. And sometimes what I wonder what our church communities would look like if we were less interested in obtaining and maintaining our rights. I don't know. What would it look like if we were less interested in condemning those around us that don't line up with our convictions, even within our church? Scripture calls us to look at people to be honored and cherished, to share, especially the family of God, us, to share in the grace and knowledge of God's glory. What would take that? What would would we have to do? What would have to happen for us to realistically do that? It would take a change of our motivation, isn't it? I'm no longer trying to do something, to gain power, to control, or whatever the case is. It's a change of motivation. So the motivation of a Christian lifestyle, what is it? Because that's really the heart of the matter that we're talking about here. This whole section starting in chapter 8, this is how Paul ends it. So this is an important, weighty section. And Paul gives us a command to be imitators of me. That's what he says, as I am of Christ. Do everything for the glory of God. That's motivation. Be imitators of me as I am Christ. Okay, so what does that really look like? It's probably best read, that phrase is probably best read. Be imitators of me, not because, Paul speaking, not because I am the Savior, but rather be imitators of me as I, along with you, follow Christ. And certainly there are things that Paul did that were wonderful and we should imitate. But he's not calling us to put our faith in him. He's calling us to put our faith in the object of Christ. You see, Christ was motivated by obeying his father and bringing him glory. That's the good news. For I have come down from heaven, John, John chapter 8 says. This is Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Think about that for a second. I have not come down from heaven. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Did Jesus, now we're getting into a theological issue here. Did Jesus have his own will? And was it ever at conflict with his father's? No. But did Jesus have his own will? He was a human. He was fully man. We can't deny that. Did he have his own desires, his own will? Think of a time where it was, a str- it was hard. I'll use a softer word. It was hard for him, and yet he still did it. Can you guys think of a time when it was hard for Jesus to do the thing he knew he needed to do, and yet he still did it willingly? The, maybe you guys are full of biblical knowledge. Maybe you can think of many things. I can think of that time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because I'm going to do it anyways. You see, when, in John chapter 8, Jesus was accused of having a demon, and Jesus denied that and also said what he does is to honor his father alone. 
So if we are to be like Christ in this way, by doing everything for the glory of God, how can that happen? I mean, is that an insurmountable in Ortland who turned me on to C.S. Lewis? You guys tracking that? Yep. And C.S. Lewis uh, argues in his essay, Three Kinds of Men. He points out there are three types of men. He explains that the first type of person does not think of this life or anything or anyone in it as more than just a natural state, right? So this person's motivation is driven by whatever gets them ahead of life or gets them what they want. Now, we know plenty of people like this. Perhaps you're one of them. Uh, Your true motivation is really just for you. Uh, You don't really, you know, you regard God as a nice concept, perhaps, but his glory, uh, you know, isn't on your mind because it's not in your heart, right? And, and, And now there's the second kind of person, and the second kind of person that Lewis describes probably, there's probably more of us here in this room that are like this. You see, The second kind of person Lewis describes is someone who understands that there is some moral law outside of themselves, like the Ten Commandments or some higher law of morals. Jesus has taught good morals, and they obey those laws. Uh, You know, I mean, they have traditional Christian values, right? Um, And but their motivation is like paying a tax. Lewis comments that their motivation to keep laws is to gain something, to have something to spend when the tax is paid. You know, I, I know I've been guilty of that. I bet you have been too. With this mindset, uh, living the Christian life is kind of like keeping a tally where we obey God to think, uh, and we obey him enough when we think we've appeased him and then we spend the rest of our time on ourselves. I, look, when, when Jesus interacted with, with people, there was one group, they were the Sadducees. They were the, you know, they were the, the liberal, uh, you know, they hated Jesus because Jesus talked about the resurrection and he upheld these mosaic commands. And, and, he, was, and he, was, he was traditional and conservative in his outlook. And how could you be that? Oh, I, how could you? Jesus, don't you know? We're educated. We're rich. We're wealthy. Don't you know that we have these things? And then you have a real educated uh, a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were really concerned about keeping the laws of God. And they hated Jesus wait a second, didn't Jesus keep the laws of God? He did, but you know what? They hated Jesus because he was free. He was free in loving his father. He took the laws and he said, you know that the most basic important thing is that you love, love your God and love others. Oh, how could you? We have so many things. We have this whole social structure that you need to uphold, Jesus. And look, it touched on them, their identity so much that both of them came together, two parties that hated each other. Both of them came together and said, we hate Jesus, let's kill him. What does it take for two parties who are opposed to each other to come together and mutually hate Jesus? One finds their identity in how, in how edu- not educated, how free they are. And one finds their identity in how good they are. And both come together and they say, we can't, he's touching on our identity. And there's two things you can do. You can either change your identity or you can kill Jesus. And so they decide to kill Jesus. The first and second person. But there's a third person Lewis describes. And this is the third person. It's the person I believe Paul is calling his readers and us to be. The third person Lewis describes is someone who, uh, and this is Lewis's quote. This is the third person. It's someone who has 
who have got rid of the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. The old egoistic will has been turned around, reconditioned, and made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs. It is theirs. All their time in belonging to him belongs also to them, for they are his. Dane Ortland comments further on C.S. Lewis. He says, you see, you don't have to be a Christian to obey God. You have to be a Christian to enjoy obeying God. Which is the only obedience that really matters anyways. You see, we have been given freedom, and we have been given a purpose in our freedom. To honor God in everything we do. So how can our motivations change from being selfish to giving glory to God? How do we navigate living in freedom while also bound to love one another? How do we navigate the realities of our world? There has to be a supernatural work of God done in our hearts which draws us closer to loving Jesus. The Holy Spirit has to work in you by changing your heart to love Jesus simply because he is the Lord. And here is how he is worth loving. You see, when he's on the cross, when the Son of God on the cross, Jesus looks down at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, it's as if Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they cannot help but do what they're doing. He touched on our identity, and either we could change our identity, or we had to get rid of them. And brothers and sisters, we had to get rid of them. But because we did, because he did the will of the Father, he has given us the Spirit which reconditions our heart into the third man. And he grows in us the enjoyment of loving and serving and honoring him in our freedom because it's him. And the Christian community is bound by the Holy Spirit, which binds us together and moves us into this community of people. One of the greatest ministry axioms I've ever heard was by Steve Thompson. We were over by Bias Brewery drinking a beer together. And Steve Thompson looked at me, and I was pretty discouraged about, about a couple of things. And, and I said, I, I don't, I'm still trying to figure out what it means to be a pastor here at Faith Covenant. And he looked at me, and he smiled, and he was listening to this. And he said, doing life with weird people. And that has stuck with me. Because it, only, it, it can only be a supernatural work of God that he can take all of us weird people and he can somehow use our weirdness to bring about his glory, to use, about our, our, to use our different convictions and our different uses of freedom to bring about his glory. And yet that's what he does because Jesus went to the cross and he changed our identities. That is the beauty that Jesus is. That is the beauty that we are called to imitate. Brothers and sisters, loving God in our freedom, loving God with our purpose, 
and loving God with our motivations. If God is honored in the things that you do, go, be free. Ask yourself, is God being honored in the things that I do? Let us imitate what we love. May we grow in love for Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as I look out on this congregation, I pray that you would use us in all the different areas that we work in, the different areas that we have our kids in, involved in, the different areas where we're, we're serving and we're volunteering. I think of this next week when we'll have a bunch of, of little kids running through these halls. Um, I pray that you would, you would use us in our mixed motivations to somehow bring about your glory. Father, grow in us. Grow in us through your spirit, which proceeds from you. Grow in us a desire to be imitators of Christ. Thank you for these people, Father. They are souls by which you put your son on the cross for. In your name, amen.